Paul Meskel, star of Normal People, is back on our screens in a film called After Sun. He plays Callum, a young separated but idealistic father who sets off on a package holiday to Turkey with his preteen daughter, Sophie, played by newcomer Frankie Corio. Their tender relationship is the very cornerstone of After Sun, the feature debut from filmmaker Charlotte, or Charlie Wells. Wells was inspired to write the screenplay after stumbling across a childhood photograph of herself taken on a foreign holiday in the 1990s, and indeed, the film is set squarely in that era, largely a technology-free zone, apart from the DV camcorder that father and daughter used to record moments from their holiday. After some was a major hit on the festival circuit this year, and that success has been followed by nominations for a slew of awards, including a Best Actor nomination for Meskel at the European Film Awards. After some opens in cinemas this weekend, and recently Sinead Egan met Paul Meskel and Charlotte Wells to talk about the film. Before that, however, here's a clip, a light-hearted moment, where Callum and Sophie, father and daughter, stumble upon a disco at their hotel and Callum indulges in some serious dad dancing. (laughs) (laughs) Last night, time for a dance? I don't dance. Sophie? I never, ever dance. Okay, I'm dancing with or without you. I told you, I love to dance. Dad, stop. This is embarrassing. Paul, you got this part after sending a self-tape audition of you smoking and dancing to a Blur song. What can you tell me about that process and what you felt when you read the script? Well, the process, I've never been asked to do that in an audition before. Um, So it kind of immediately subverts the whole process in a way that I was interested by and also kind of takes the intent for it to be a finished performance in an audition out of it so you get to kind of play and show um the character in a more private moment so i i loved it to be honest um i think it was a great idea from charlie yeah and we sort of see him in that mode through the film exactly so is that something that stayed with you as you were working on it yeah and it also just drew my attention to the fact that that was something that charlie was innately interested in and in that it was the private moments versus the public and this is one of those private moments and there are a kind of few scattered through the film but they I I think um, they carry a lot of weight. Yeah. What did you feel about the character of Callum when you were approaching the role? Because it's a father role Mm -hmm. but that's a very narrow description of what's going on here because he's actually grappling with so much. Yeah, totally. I think on that thought entered my mind quickly and left it pretty quickly soon after that it was a father role it was many other things to me before it was that um i think it's the thing that i loved about it straight off the bat is that he's a young father yes but he's also an ex like he's an excellent father i think it kind of again subverts what we assume of a young single dad and we see him as i think it's the thing that he's best at in the world is being a dad to sophie and then all the other stuff on top of it like the his battles with his own um, mental health and his kind of, uh, I think, his lack of understanding about what's kind of going on um, behind the curtain was like very rich territory to get to play in. And th- the character is just so well drawn and written by Charlotte that I was, I just, I just like adored, adored the script and the character and, and I adore that man. So it was, uh, yeah, I, I, 
I don't I don't have many more superlatives that I can say in relation to that. <laughs> um, Charlie, can you tell us how this story came about? Because you were inspired by an old photograph that had been taken on a family holiday. Isn't that right? Yeah, um, there's a photograph of me age around six sitting uh, half naked by a pool in Spain with a very beautiful woman immediately behind me. And I was flipping through an old album and looked at this photograph and wondered for a moment who the real subject of the photo was. Um, And I love that to kind of inspire a piece that began as um, a little bit more conventional, more fictional. And uh, the process of writing, I think, eventually seeped into the writing itself and allowing my own memories to form the outline um, brought this uh, retro, retroactive perspective uh, across the film. And when Paul sent you that tape of him smoking and dancing to this Blur song, because music really does play an important role in this film, but can you tell me how that clinched in the role? Why did it work so well? Um, it's, it was an interesting exercise, that one. I think Paul spoke very nicely as to why it has value in this kind of process, is allowing an actor to inhabit the character in, in a private space. Um, and I think... Paul, Paul was willing, willing to do that and willing to kind of express something through that process. And then we talked and we had a really lovely conversation um, about the character, about my intentions for the film. And I think Paul understood it in a way that very few other people had. Paul, in the film, there's something so open and available about Callum. And yet he's also concealing so much. Mm-hmm. When you were working on the role, how did you approach creating a backstory for him in your own mind? Yeah, I think that I would do that with any um, character that I play. And I think this was one of those that there was just lots of room to explore that because a lot of it, I think the vast majority of it remains unsaid and can remain private to either the actor and the director and the filmmakers throughout. That's my favourite kind of film to be involved with is when you get to build this inner life but you don't have to show the audience what that looks or feels like they get that feeling through micro expressions or through moments in private or through kind of building an understanding for themselves with the character so yes I think I went off and constructed what I felt like was my inner life for Callum and and Charlotte would check in with me and we would have conversations about that but um, yeah so I we kind of built that together and uh, we haven't mentioned Frankie Corio yet. Uh, she plays your daughter, yeah. Sophie, in the film. I mean, her performance is just exceptional. And the two of you have such beautiful chemistry. How did you work at that? How did you establish that? We we spent two weeks together before we started filming in Turkey. So we landed in and essentially we, uh, we had plans to like re- rehearse a little bit, but then it ultimately kind of became a spending of time together. It was just hanging out by the pool, playing pool. Think you'll ever move back to Scotland? No. Why? And there's this feeling, once you leave where you're from, that you don't totally belong there again. You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything. Whatever parties you go to, boys you meet, drugs you take. Dad! Oh my God, what even is that? These are my moves. That's so embarrassing. That's not embarrassing. Her parents were incredibly generous with kind of giving me time with Frankie and I think ultimately that's what we we needed. Like Frankie is a very 
very easy person to spend time with and is really invigorating. So um, a lot of that was the easy uh, part of the work to me. It was just enjoying this wonderful person's company. And Charlie, could you talk a little bit about how you found Frankie and how you coaxed that performance out of her? Because I know you tried to avoid over-rehearsing. In fact, she never had a full script. No, she didn't. And that was under the guidance of my casting director, Lucy Party, um, who's worked extensively with children and with people who haven't previously acted. And it was a very extensive process. We met with um, or had some missions from around 800 people. And over the course of six months, worked through various exercises until we met about 16 people in person last February in Glasgow. And Frankie was one of those people and she came in the room and just absolutely blew us away. Um, not with an ability to kind of play out the various scenarios um, as herself, but as an ability to do that under direction and, and as somebody else. Um, Frankie really has a tremendously innate ability to act in an, a way that I think is very rare in, um, in younger people. And so on set, it was just a case of giving her space and making her feel as comfortable as possible. Like Paul said, those two weeks before we started shooting, they had the opportunity to spend a lot of time together and really build um, a bond, like a, a genuine bond. Um, obviously, it's not like a familial bond, um, but it was strong enough that we were able to portray that relationship on screen. And she really is amazing and kept us on our feet at every moment. I was I was there to support her and guide her where she needed it, but uh, she did extremely well all on her own. Paul, this film launched at Cannes. It was so well received there. It won the French Touch Prize of the Jury at Critics Week there. It's been nominated for 16 British Independent Film Awards. But I think it's fair to say that it's having a really emotional impact on audiences. What's it been like for you to sit in cinemas and see how people are reacting to this film? I mean, people are having very visceral reactions. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I love it. I, I think it's um, what you, you don't set out to do that maybe, but it's like, it's a, it's a nice, um, there's just great relief in kind of making something and then sitting in a dark room with an audience that are encountering it for the first time and seeing that they're being moved in the right places. So yeah, I, 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 I find it hard to articulate it for what, for what it is, but it's kind of, it's, it's incredibly satisfying, you know? And were you moved when you watched it? Yeah, I think the first time I watched it was uh, by myself in a screening room. And the first time I watch anything is kind of just a blind panic and hoping that the performance stitches together. And then the first true time that I watched it was in Cannes. And then I found that particularly moving because I was beside Charlie and Frankie. And I don't think it's particularly cool to be crying at your own screening but it was a <laughs> it was a it was a, it was on the line there for a second I mean it's understandable yeah um Charlie on my estimation this is set in the late 90s just judging from the music why did you decide to set it at this time yeah I mean I think because the film does have this gaze of, of looking backward it obviously had to be set in the past but even in the earliest incarnation of the film uh, which didn't necessarily have that when I first conceived of it. It was always set in the 90s, and I think that's because I am a kid of the 90s, and that is that that is where those photographs that inspired the project, that's when they take place. It also does come with a lack of, um, or a very different type of technology in play and, and not having to deal with um, smartphones or iPhones. <laughs> 
throughout the film was was something appealing in this specifically. But I think that it allows a certain type of boredom to set in, you know, that that is without technology, uh, and it felt felt very authentic to that type of holiday at that time. I love you. Love you. Voices of Paul Meskel and Frankie Corio uh, at the end of that uh, section of the film After Sun. Before that, you heard the director, Charlie, or Charlotte Wells, and Paul Meskel speaking to Sinead Egan about that film After Sun. It opens in cinemas this weekend. We'll be reviewing it on Thursday night's arena. Poet Vonor Grork's newly published collection is called Hereafter. It's an imaginative sleuthing out of the life of Vona's great-grandmother, Ellen O'Hara, who left Ireland in July 1882 to find a new life in New York. With very few of the facts or personal recollections of her great-grandmother to go on, Vona created an imagined conversation across the centuries with Ellen O'Hara, bringing us a life that is at once particular, yet representative of, of the lives of so many Irish women at that particular time in history. Delighted to be joined from Cambridge, England, uh, this evening by Vona Grork. Um, hereafter, The Telling Life of Ellen O'Hara is what the title that you've given to the collection. You were in New York on a residency in the Cullman Centre at the New York uh, Public Library, Vona, and, and that, what was it that brought your great-grandmother and her story into your mind? Well, I suppose New York was always part of my family story, Sean, because my mother was born there in 1924. Um, so I suppose one one lunchtime I was just trying to remember some of the stories she told me. And so I started rooting around in the very extensive archives that were there in the New York Public Library. And uh, I started to wonder, well, you know, what can I find out about somebody who, um, who I know so little about? Mm. And is there likely to be much um, evidence of her left? And are there likely to be buildings left that she lived in and is she going to show up in documents Um, and I found really that there was very little because she wasn't a woman of means she never owned her own property she always rented Um, she shows up in census records and in passenger lists and in a couple of other uh, places but really it's a very light trace that she leaves on the historical record as I think was the case Mm. for many women of her of her class and of her time However, the very first, there, there are all sorts of elements within the book, research, you know, quotes from journals of the time, illustrations from some of the illustrated magazines of the time. But the very first line of your own poetry, I think, within the collection uh, is, my great grandmother stops by today to check in on me. And I had this image of Vona Grork sitting in New York somewhere and literally, it, whatever it was, the ghost, the voice, the sound, the feel of your great grandmother kind of knowing what you were up to. Was that close to what actually (laughs) happened? Yeah, it pretty much is. I mean, when when I realised that I wasn't going to find her in the places that I was looking, I thought, well, where else am I going to look to find her? And I thought, well, I am a, a blood descendant of hers, so I can actually look in my own mind and uh, I can remember some of the stories that were told to me by my mother about her grandmother. Hmm. And uh, I can also imagine, because that's what I do. I'm a writer, I can imagine. Um, but I didn't want it to be a novel kind of a project. I yeah. didn't want it to be a work of fiction. It was very important 
important to me that I tell um, what, insofar as I can establish the truth of her life or of lives of women like hers, then I want to tell that truth. So everything that I imagine her telling me. So, yes, you're right. I have her sit in the corner of my office <laughs> and she starts to tell me things. And she's very judgmental of what I'm doing and she's very sceptical and sometimes she's a bit catty about it. Um, but everything she says to me, um, about her life as a domestic mm. servant and as running a boarding house and so on is based on research that I, I did yeah. um, of other historians' actual work in investigating the, the living and, and economic circumstances of women like Ellen. So I did not make that stuff up. <laughs> what I, what I did, the fictional element, I suppose, is in applying those yes. truths to her particular life. Yeah, so I mean and the first piece of, uh, I suppose evidence that you go looking for in terms of trying to find your great grandmother and, and detail of her in any kind of public record is to uh, the baptismal uh, certificates and the, the records around baptisms and you, you're pretty certain that you found that woman and the parish in which she was baptised. Yes, I know that's her because I knew what her parents' names yeah. were. Um, and and so, the, you know, her, her father had a, well, actually, it wasn't that unusual at the time, but her father's name was Austin, which is unusual now, but, but uh, not quite so much then. And her mother's name was Anne. So you don't get an Ellen who's a daughter of an Austin yeah. and an Anne from the exact place that I knew she was from, except in this one instance. So I knew that was her. And because I found that pretty easily, I thought, oh, this is going to be a doddle. <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> a doddle it certainly wasn't a doddle yeah, I didn't even know when she had died to be honest it yeah. took like finding the birth search was relatively easy but finding out when she died was so incredibly difficult and a lot has to happen in between the birth search and the dying as well not yes. least of, I suppose yes. the, the, the historical period here is is vital to the story that you're telling when was, when was she born? She was born in 1862 and uh, she left Ireland in the early 1880s. And so if you can imagine, so the fam the Great Famine is over, but every every now and then there are smaller famines that bubble up. Mm. Now, they didn't have anything like the, the same kind of consequences as the Great Famine. But if you can imagine living under the shadow of, of that Great Famine and every time something goes wrong with your crop, you're thinking, oh, here we go again. And uh, we're all going to be, you know, severely um, affected by this again. So, I, you know, I try to imagine what's that like in a way, that kind of post-traumatic state of mind where you're all the time expecting the trauma to arise again. And so one answer to to that was um, to, to have many children and to export them, which is a very cruel answer. Mm. But I think that was a fairly sort of practical answer in a way. So if, if, if as in the case of Austin and Anne, you had 11 children and you, you sent... And eight of them off to America, then you had eight less mouths to feed at home, but you also had eight little envelopes coming back on a regular basis with money that you knew would would shore up the farm and would provide for you and uh, would pay the rent. And so that was that was terribly important. So I think you know, although it's not a, a story of the Great Famine, I think the shadow of the Great Famine certainly looms over it. Yeah, and what we what we certainly get a sense of is a, a, a land where a lot of the young and a lot of the bright and energetic young 
have left. They're gone. Will Will you read a section from the the the, the book itself or the collection itself is divided up into eleven sections in total? I think it is. Um, uh, being here, being the, the the early one where we're kind of finding out a little bit about her her birth and her background. That this is your great grandmother. Then we have section two, the long shadow, which is a direct reference to to the famine itself. There's a section here that talks about. Not every parish was destitute, but maybe if you just read a little bit of it for us, we'd get a sense of kind of post-famine Ireland and the, the kind of devastation there was. Yeah, and can I, can I just say as well, um, Sean, that I, I when when Ellen speaks, which she does repeatedly throughout the book, um, she speaks in sonnets because I felt there just had to be some kind of organising principle mm. to make sure that when she spoke, you could tell that that was her and that it wasn't me as the the sort of narrator voice speaking. So she speaks in in these in these kind of folk sonnets. They're not poetry the way I usually write poems. They're they're sort of like folk sonnets. They're a voice. Yeah. They're character driven. They're driven by her. Okay, so will I read a little a little bit of um, of that one that's about the shadow of the famine? Yes. It's where um, basically I've asked her to tell me about it and this is what she says. I can't give you much else. People hated to talk about it. Mama and Dada would bless themselves and remain mute as stones if we asked. You'd almost swear they were untrue. The stories we learned listening to the wind, wheedle names from gaps and clumps of stones where houses used to be or picking out lazy beds, poking through the skin of farms where people lived and ate and tended crops that closed over the past, but the land remembered if people refused. Now and then a name followed by God rest her soul, or a patch of road hurried past when there was no call. The field with no cross, said to be brimming with dead, thin bones rattling when a rook alit, if you listened hard. A shard of cup seen in a ditch where no cup ought to be. Silence to fill a church if we asked, did any of us die? It's extraordinary, really, there, isn't it? Uh, and that kind of, uh, not only, that's, I should say, Vona Clark reading one of, one of her great-grandmother's folk sonnets. Uh, and I love the fact that all of those little sonnets of, with her speaking are also in quotations, as if she literally dictated it across <laughs> the across the room from that little chair that, that she was sitting on. Uh, to Do you know, Sean, at... at- at this stage, I almost believe myself that she did. <laughs> I almost believe that I that somehow it, they, they, um, this information was not the product of my research, but was the product of this stern woman in her black clothes looking at mm. me askance across the table and telling me things. And one of the things I've discovered from this project is that it's a lot easier to conjure up a ghost than it is to actually get rid of them <laughs> when the project is <laughs> over. So she's still she's still checking out. She's probably listening to us right now, checking she's out. Still, what, yeah, what, yeah. <laughs> what words? What 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 you're saying to me? So we have those sections, as you say, and that gives us a sense that not only had you the difficulty of finding records here, but it it is a period, and obviously in the immediate aftermath, people just didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to get stuck into things. They didn't want to go down the the route of that. Uh, you know, reliving the trauma. I I suppose in some ways. Then you you start to follow her and her decision to to head off to America, and in fact. Great place to look. You looked at the list of passengers embarking on ships leaving Ireland. You found three Ellen O'Hara's. 
Yeah, and at that stage, you just have to pick one because there's uh, there's no way of knowing. So in the first instance, I pick one because there's another, there's a Kath character who's on the passenger list underneath, mm. and I decide that that's her cousin, Kath. And then after a, a, a little bit of running with that idea, she turns around, Ellen turns around in the office and says to me, no, you're wrong, that's not me. So then I just have to pick one of, one of the other ones. And uh, anyway, I get her to New York, and I get her off the ship, and... And I get her doing what women did um, with, well, they had, they had some education. They mm. weren't, they weren't illiterate. They had some education, um, most of them. Um, and so she went to an intelligence office, as it was called, um, which is a place that you went to present yourself as a, as an employee for domestic service. And then you got placed and you had no idea if you were getting a good place or a not so good place. And you just had to learn um, by ex- Experience as to how to read the place that you were given mm. and it was really hard work yeah, you were and, working and 15 hours a day for six and a half days a week yeah that's an 85 hour week is what we're talking about there just to put you know if you think of the 40 hour week as being yeah. the, the kind of the working week at the moment um you know and we're talking about over 40 percent of them you give us all sorts of statistics which are again backed up by these are not made up statistics they're researched statistics 40 percent of america's 320,000 servants were Irish born and that was as late as 1900 so it obviously was a, a yeah. very common kind of occupation for Irish women to follow maybe you'd read a section uh, from me about the domestic service uh, from that sure. section of the book yeah. um, where we get a sense of the, the sort of life that they led and, and what they were doing with the money yes okay they paid me the month in dollar bills two quarters a luck penny for the first time in my life I learned to make friends with money I slept on my bills, a clever sleep to wish them ten bills more, the penny I sewed in my apron, lest I forget why I came here. At the savings bank, five dollars bought an order for a pound for the rent back home. Once that was sent, we'd set aside a little by and by for a hat or dress. For who wants to be serving six days a week and still look like a servant on day seven? Did I mind? That money I skivvied for should slip through my father's open hands, God bless him, into the greedy maw of a landlord who'd demand every farthing owed, good harvest or bad, no matter if a man was sick or if his children starved. My seven days a week, hard labour, grime and ash and slack, converted to carriages, jewels and law. That's some magic trick. And that's uh, Vona Grork reading from the domestic services section of her latest collection called Hereafter, which is effectively uh, Vona's imagining of the life of her great-grandmother who left Ireland post-famine, uh, and in this version of her story at any rate, goes to America. Um, th- there are so many sections of the book then, you know, you, you follow her right through her life and we, we see the, the relationships that she builds. We even get her coming back home at one stage uh, as well. But I couldn't, I, I want to go back to the very beginning and something that when you found it and thought about it must have been um, must have been quite interesting Glenavu or Glenavuacht which was where your great grandmother was, was born and, and grew up maybe you'd give us the two meanings for that particular townland or to our place name yes I will so it means I just pulled out the, the relevant page there um, it's a little village just um, it's not a village anymore but it would have been more of a village back then and it's um, right beside Loch Talt which is a, a very very beautiful part of South, South County Sligo and the two possible meanings of Fua um, 
are the first one is uh, form or shape or phantom or specter. So there's the the meaning of ghost. It's like it's kind of blaring at me. And the other one then is hate or hatred, mm. because you just think, well, there had to have been an edge. I mean, this was not a life that was chosen. Um, it was chosen to an extent, but it was also not chosen to a very large extent in that this was what you had to do to 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 yeah. survive, really. So I think there had to be an element of hatred. And I imagine that a lot of the hard job of these young girls, and they were very young, and that was one of the extraordinary things that differentiated Irish emigration from, emigra- from immigration from every other country in Europe, was that it was characterized by single girls traveling yeah. on their own. Yeah, um, so they weren't going in family groups. So I think the challenge for them was not just to make a life, not just to make some money, but also to find some of their kind of girlish joy again and yeah. just to be able to yeah. be happy in some small way in the midst of all of this misery. Well, she, she is a fascinating woman sitting across the desk from you. Uh, um, I, I have the sense that she will be haunting you for, for a little while yet. Um, it's as much a social, <laughs> I suppose in some ways, Vona, it's a social history as much as it is anything else. And very interesting in that respect. Thanks for sharing uh, some of the story with us this evening, Vona. You're very welcome, Sean. Thank you. That's Vona Grok. And hereafter, The Telling Life of Ellen O'Hara is published by New York University Press. Hereafter is launched in Dublin in Books Upstairs uh, this coming Thursday at 6.30pm. I'm well worth getting your teeth into a little bit of it if you get a copy of it. Let me just correct a date. Um, the year's going quick enough without me getting rid of the rest of the month of November. Th- uh, Thursday, December the 1st at 6.30pm is the launch of Hereafter, The Telling Life of Ellen O'Hara, uh, the Vona Gork book that we were speaking about. Dublin, uh, in Books Upstairs, Thursday, December the 1st at 6.30pm. Cartoon Saloon's Nora Toomey's first film since her Oscar-nominated The Breadwinner is My Father's Dragon. The film is inspired by the beloved children's book of the same name by Ruth Stiles Gannett. My Father's Dragon is the story of a 10-year-old boy called Elmer who's having trouble adjusting to life in a new town. His various adventures lead him to meet ferocious beasts and a friendly and rather magical dragon called Boris. Like the acclaimed films The Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, Wolfwalkers and the Breadwinner, My Father's Dragon showcases the exquisite old-school animation synonymous with Cartoon Saloon. It boasts quite a voice cast, including Whoopi Goldberg, Ian McShane, Chris O'Dowd, Alan Cumming. I recently spoke to director Nora Toomey and I began by asking her to set the scene for My Father's Dragon. Oh, wow. So we're, we're certainly in America and we are around kind of 1930s kind of a, a feel to it. And we are with a character called Elmer, who's around about 10 years old. And uh, he and his mom have to leave kind of everything that they know and feel secure with and move to a city called Nevergreen. And Nevergreen is nothing like he expected it to be. It's not a place where he feels... Um, very secure or he really doesn't know what's going on and his mom starts to try and I guess protect him from the truth of their situation by not really communicating well with him and so Elmer tries to run away he runs away to try and find something that's going to solve all his problems and answer all the questions that he he can't find answers to and so he goes to a a magical world called uh, Wild Island 
and this island is uh, sinking and it also has a dragon on it. And Elmer thinks this dragon is, is the thing that's going to answer all of his prayers. But of course, the dragon ends up being or turns out to be a, a kid just like Elmer who doesn't really have answers either. Yeah, it, it really is a very imaginative world, particularly when we get to that magic island that that uh, Elmer ends up uh, travelling to, I suppose. But this is based on a, a, a 1948 children's book by Ruth Stiles Gannett called My Father's Dragon. Much loved book in the United States. Were you familiar with it, Nora? I don't know if it would be, we would be as familiar with it on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, it's 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 not so so common here uh, in Ireland for sure. And so, no, I wasn't familiar with it. So the first I heard of it was about ten years ago, when uh, Julie Lynn, who's uh, one of the producers on the project, she had seen The Secret of Kells, and uh, really loved it. And then she um, loved uh, My Father's Dragon. Her husband, when he was a child, used to read it when you know I used to have it read to him by his parents. And then Julie, in turn, read it to uh, their their children when when they were growing up and when they were small, and so um, she wanted to put those two elements together. And so I read the book on the way up to meet Julie, um, and there was a particular page that really struck me uh, early on in the book. Elmer tries to he, he he sees a stray cat and he gives a saucer of milk to the cat, and his mom gets really angry with him, and it just really struck me. I was thinking like, what is it? what's going on in their lives that a saucer of milk is a big deal for the mm. mom and then what's going on with Elmer that he looks up into his mom's face and doesn't um, probably doesn't recognize what he sees with the, the stress and whatever is going on for her the things that she can't uh, she's trying to protect him from and so I knew that there was a lot of depth to the story because it had that element and then it had all of the kind of really fantastical element elements and then this wonderful friendship between Elmer and Boris the dragon uh, in the in the that story and so I, I knew that we could bring uh, a lot of depth, that we could bring a lot of that depth to the screen. Yeah. And so that's what really interested in me uh, me in this whole project. Well, I love the idea that the guys, when they were reading the book, that they, that they said, this is back in 2011, and they said, do you know who'd be great for this? Whoever those guys are who did that recently released movie, <laughs> The Secret of Kells. <laughs> you know, clearly there was something in, in and, and The Secret of Kells was really such a launching pad. There was something in that that really captured their imagination. Yeah, for sure. You know, that, that that project is very, you know, special and very close to, to my heart. And it's one that I really began to kind of understand the power of, of film and the power that uh, I could have as a storyteller um, and, and the, you know, what it is to work with a, a really, you know, a, a big team of talented people. That was the kind of the, the, the biggest thing I'd been involved in uh, up to up to that that point. And it it. it it is and has been, you know, something that that has been really, really good for us. Um, we we started out as a you know, cartoon saloon started out just as a bunch of friends who just wanted to make cool stuff together, um, and had no idea of what a business was or how to run a, an animation studio, but just had enough kind of of that magic mix of naivety and kind of will, sheer will, um, <laughs> that we, we managed to get things going. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, you know, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I, I think what we managed to, to do was um, was was something special. And I, I guess the, the company continues to, to yeah. know, try and reach stories like that. Yeah. And, and in terms of working with Netflix and Cartoon Saloon, what you bring to the table, I suppose, in some ways, there is, a, a, when I say simplicity here, I mean it as a compliment. There is a simplicity in terms of the storytelling that Cartoon Saloon seemed to be able to do is to, you know, bring 
this narrative via animation to our screens and into our, our minds. That That's a huge strength and it, it's really needed in this piece in particular. Yeah, you know, we're not really interested in, I don't know, I suppose, you know, uh, forefronting like selling toys or, or doing something mm. really gimmicky or making something that looks really cool now and that's going to like date in 10 years time. Uh, we really just want to tell good stories the best way we can and to continue to challenge ourselves in the types of stories that we're telling. Um, and so that's why uh, this particular film was was something that was really interesting because I, for me the, the the depth of both the the kind of the human relationships and I, I you know I, I'm including the dragon in that because I think that central relationship between um, Elmer and Boris um, uh, mm. Jacob uh, uh, Jacob Tremblay and and uh, Gaten Matarazzo who who voiced the two characters they were able to bring a depth to that those performances that our animators really, really responded to. Yeah. And they were just swept away as they, as they, they, they you know, uh, worked through the whole process. Yeah, you mentioned Jacob Tremblay, of course. People will remember from his remarkable performance in, in Room. He plays Elmer, who's the young boy, and then Gatton Matarazzo of Stranger Things. He's playing uh, Boris, Boris the dragon, the multicoloured dragon, in fact, uh, in, in this particular case. You, you did a very a wise thing I would have thought you had the two of them together recording their elements together because it is about that friendship so often in in animation you know you go in you do your bit and you might be nobody there you might even be talking to a blue ski you might be talking to nothing other than an image in front of you no responses back and how vital was that relationship building by having the two of them record together Oh, it was it was incredible. Yeah, like our, our cast uh, as an ensemble is is uh, is huge. We have Whoopi Goldberg, Ian McShane, Rita Moreno. Um, you know, we we just uh, in, incredible uh, actors. So uh, to be able to record uh, Jacob and Gaten together was a, an absolute treat. But it was absolutely necessary because together they were able to pitch their performances. Both of them have huge imaginations, but they also have. Um, a great depth so they were able to bring us the fun stuff where you know Boris is kind of noodling at Elmer and trying to kind of you know get in under his skin a little bit and then at the same time they you know some of the the, the really dramatic uh, sequences in the film they really went to town on and as a director to be you know privileged enough to be able to stand in the room with them I could literally feel the electricity between them it was uh, something to behold and I think that you'll, you'll feel that on the screen as well they just brought such magic to the film Jacob Tremblay uh, playing Elmer, the, uh, playing Elmer the boy, and Gatton Matsorazzo playing Boris the dragon in My Father's Dragon. Certainly, as you told, as you said to us, Nora Toomey, they are a, a great pair together. But you've mentioned some of the other casting, voice casting, Whoopi Goldberg, Chris O'Dowd, Alan Cummings, and the list goes on and on. What what brought? What, how you, were you able to get cast a voice of a voice cast of that caliber? Was it Cartoon Saloon? Was it Netflix? Mixture of the two. You know, I'm I I still I still don't really know because I, I you know if it were down to me I wouldn't you know I, I I wouldn't shoot for the stars because I I just wouldn't think I would have already I'd say no to myself before before anybody else had a, had a chance to and so when Meg Lefauve our, our writer um, who uh, was a writer on Inside Out as well when she first began writing the project she was saying okay well we have to give you know we have to imagine somebody when we're writing, you know, the character. So who, who would you think? And I say, well, like a Gaten type kind of person, you know, and, and so, uh, or, or an Ian McShane yeah. 
pipe-ish kind of thing when we were talking about the say with the gorilla. Um, and so our casting director, Amy Lippens, just went and got these people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> amazing. So she just kept, you know, ringing up and saying, OK, well, you know, Ian has said yes and Muppy said yes and Rita said yes and Gaten and Jacob have said yes. So I found myself just in the room, you know, with these people thinking, oh, my gosh, now I've got to now I've got to direct myself. Yeah. So, yeah. Here. so, yeah, it was, it was such a such an amazing cast. Yeah. What happens next for Nora Toomey? What happens next for, for Cartoon Saloon? The, the trajectory is quite definitely on the up. It has been from the very beginning. What's next for Nora Toomey is a lot of sleep, I think, and just a little bit of rest after this kind of experience. But for uh, for Cartoon Saloon, we have a number of projects uh, in development and we have a, a number of really exciting directors. Tom is looking at his, his next project uh, uh, Louise Bagnell, who was my assistant director on My Father's Dragon, she uh, was nominated for an Oscar for her short film late afternoon uh, a couple of years ago. So she's also developing uh, a, a project. So we we just have a yeah we've we've a number of, of projects in the development. So we're, we're not going anywhere. Yeah, and obviously you're only working with Oscar nominees. Is this is the new routine since all of you have so many of them under your belts at this stage? Nora, lovely to speak with you to, uh, tonight. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. Nora Toomey there and My Father's Dragon is now available on Netflix and in cinemas and on November the 19th My Father's Dragon the exhibition will be on show at the Butler Gallery in Kilkenny. 1899 an epic multi-language mystery mystery horror arrives on Netflix this Thursday it's an eight part series telling the story of a 19th century ocean liner captain and his many troubled passengers whose lives take a turn following the discovery of a derelict steamship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean it sounds reasonably straightforward but 1899 is anything but armed with a plethora of puzzles for its audiences to solve this dense occasionally disorientating mystery is designed to keep us on the edge of our seat. I'm joined now by Chris Wasser, who has been watching 1899 and is going to tell me how close to the edge of the seat he was while doing so. Hmm. Um, I suppose <laughs> they're very strict on spoilers, so you know what you're yeah. not allowed to tell, Chris. Um, we got the big sheet telling us what not to say. <laughs> how how would you give us the basic setup here, the important elements of it? Uh, with great difficulty, Sean. Um, but yeah, basic setup is that we are in the la- in the final few months of the 19th century, and we have a migrant steamship known as the Kerberos. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Has set sail from Europe to New York, and on board you have somewhere around 1,500 souls, all of them looking to you know uh, for for peace and prosperity, and hopefully for some of them redemption. You know, in the mm. new world, they're all off to America to start a new life. Uh, and there are so many characters and 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 subplots and backstories that straight away you're reminded of Lost in more ways than one. I remember when Lost came out, you know, all the way back in 2004, you were, I was thinking to myself, here is an ensemble piece without a clear protagonist, but one that you're going to have to, you know, it was the first of its kind in mm. terms of mystery box television, and you're going to have to put all the pieces together week by week very slowly. And, you know, you, you have this, and in 1899, we see this mischievous sort of zigzag storytelling approach where there's a little bit of science fiction going on, there's a little bit of horror, a little bit of mystery, but basically the Kerberos is, is on its voyage and you have more Franklin, she one of the uh, passengers on yeah, board. Yeah, Emily Beecham's character. Yes. She kind of 
certainly in episode one, she's the one who's going to bring us through it or does that change? Yeah, well, we're with her in the first episode. But again, like Lost, use that comparison. Like Every episode brings, you know, a new Another player character. into, the, into okay. the spotlight. But first of all, we're with Maura Franklin. She's a doctor. She's bearing both emotional and physical scars. Uh, she's, you know, haunted by these disorientating dreams, you know, and also uh, hallucinations at times. And she's going to fit right in on the ship because the mm. ship's captain, Ike Larson, he is uh, portrayed by Andreas Pichman, uh, the German captain. He's also played by Bad Dreams and he has a harrowing past of his own. His family uh, died in a tragic house fire and they're distracted with all these, you know, uh, things from, from, from their own lives when all of a sudden Mora is in the room with the captain when they get a distress call from another ship in the company known as the Prometheus. And we know that the captain and Mora have connections to the Prometheus and the Prometheus, Sean, hasn't been seen or heard from in four months. So the captain makes a decision, which is not a very popular one with the people on board, to turn the ship around, to go off course for seven hours and to try and make contact with the Prometheus. And as I say, the passengers won't be happy because like Mora and like the captain, they're all hiding things. They all have their own secrets. All right. Well, let's let's have a listen to the moment when the captain, uh, Andreas Peachman, delivers the news to the passengers that this message has come in and that they're going to head off. We'll hear several passengers here, among them Angle, played by Miguel Bernardo, and Virginia, played by Rosalie Craig. Six hours ago, we received a message, coordinates southwest of our coast. We believe this message comes from the Prometheus, the ship that went missing a couple of months ago. Believe. You're not sure the signal comes from lost ship? We are not. But the communication technology we're using on the ships of this company is rare. It can reach further distances than that on other ships. The coordinates were seven hours away from us. And there's no other ship from our company traveling this route at the moment. What else did the message say? Just that. The location. They didn't identify themselves as the Prometheus. Nor did they say they were in need of any help. So we're changing course because of message from a known sender who did not ask for help. The Prometheus carried 1,423 passengers. Some of them might still be alive. But after four months? So there you go, the passengers uh, on board the other ship, not happy that Captain Larson has decided to head off and see if he can find uh, who or what is on the Prometheus and uh, are, they, are there any souls left to save. But even from that clip, this is from um, the 1899, the new Netflix drama that Chris Wasser is speaking to us about. Even in that clip, we, we've a, there's a Spanish accent in there. There's mm-hmm. a very straightforward English voice. There's the, the captain is German. In other scenes, we have Danish is spoken, yep. Polish is spoken, French is spoken uh, there's Cantonese there's Japanese it, it really is an international list of passengers Absolutely. how important is that to the telling or to uh, the story uh, quite important uh, because the filmmakers behind it Shante Freeze and Baran Boador who actually gave us the German filmmakers and partners who gave us Dark which is one of the most critically acclaimed one of the highest rated shows on Netflix it is this from the same team they said that when designing the show initially in terms of a premise in terms of the international cast in terms of the characters it was designed as a sort of counterpoint to Brexit to remind audiences of almost you know this is what happens when Europeans create together when we work together when we overcome problems together and this idea too that you know maybe they and us the audience had seen too many shows where you have this international cast Mm -hmm. and I mentioned one earlier Lost again where you 
don't have them communicating in their own language to other people or trying to communicate. They're all they they all conveniently speak English, and that's not you know authentic. And in, in, in you know although this show does you know go a little off the wall after you know after about half an hour, uh, the authenticity comes from them trying to communicate with one another in their own language and also uh, having that security because no one on this ship is who they say they are. And you do have these Spanish brothers in one corner, you have a, Kansas, a, Ch a Chinese woman in, in in another corner who's pretending for reasons we don't yet know to be a Japanese geisha. They're all communicating to one another and they feel secure that the other people don't understand, but at the same time, paranoid of what the other people on, on the table across them are saying. So that adds to the mystery and it also builds a little bit of characterization when, you know, things like the mm. the, 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 the plot don't, doesn't necessarily do so, but the international cast does, does, does give it a yeah, bit of weight. Yeah, because I mean, I, I, I just got a chance to, to watch the opening episode. You've seen three, I uh, have. three of the eight episodes yes. uh, at this point in time. And certainly in that opening episode, the Emily Beecham character is very important here and I did wonder... We are in the late 19th century. I was speaking of Ono Grok about this earlier on yeah. and her great-great-grand, or her great-grandmother who went off to America. Are, are we any Irish characters on board? And might we hear a bit of Gaelic? I think straight away when I heard that the, the main character was 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 Mora and she was a redhead, I thought, well, there has to be some sort of Irish heritage here. And I won't spoil anything, but someone does make some sort of assumption at some stage that she might be of Irish heritage. So I wouldn't be surprised if a little bit of Irish actually came into this. But uh, yeah, Mora is the, 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 the focus in episode one. We shift in episode two. Again, we are kind of, we're not at liberty to kind of give too much yeah. away. But what I will say is, you know, things, again, I'll say things do start to go off the wall a little bit and it does go down a very kind of supernatural mystery almost science fiction route because when the uh, uh, Kerberos reaches the Prometheus I won't say what they find at mm. the Prometheus we're but they no say. we're not allowed to say Sean we got that spoiler sheet uh, but they do find something and that has kind of disastrous and spooky uh, consequences for the people on board the Kerberos because the captain then makes a decision that rather than go to America we're going to tow the Prometheus back to London and as I say nobody on that ship wants to go back to where they came from so all hell breaks loose. Let's have a listen to a clip featuring Emily Beecham. We heard Rosalie Craig um, and they're, they're sitting at the table. They're tra both travelling alone and both quite happy. <laughs> well, yeah. well, we think they're happy to be yeah. travelling alone. Who knows what we're going to find out further into the series. Uh, and Maura, the Emily Beecham character, is a doctor, which is something that she kind of has to keep secret as well, nearly. Is it true that you're a doctor? I think this was, is on the human brain. They let you cut up brains. Women in England are allowed to study, not practice. That's what they do, don't they? They show you the world. And then they tell you you can't have it. See that man over there? Dr. Reginald Murray. He's dumb as a stump. His father was a doctor and so was his father and so on and so on. Born a boy and spoiled silly. Tell me. What is so interesting about the brain? The brain drives our thoughts, our behavior. It holds all of the secrets of the universe. The secrets of the universe? There's a whole hidden world inside each one of us which only needs to be deciphered. Aren't something's better left in the dark? And there we have uh, Rosalie Craig and Emily Beecham in a scene from 1899, a new Netflix series that Chris Wasser has been watching. It, struck me too, it strikes me too, Chris, that there we have that you know, discussion of science and what science can possibly give us. 
and yet the supernatural is in here as well. It, it is at that moment in history, isn't it, where science and the supernatural are rubbing up against each other quite, yeah, and quite that, a lot. And that is important. And also at one stage you think that this is going to be a show that's not going to kind of resort to kind of silly science fiction shenanigans to entertain us. And then in the next scene you have this green beetle walking around the ship and you think, right, there is a dash of silliness here. We're going to have to yeah. just, just just go with this. Um, I, I, Will I, you watch? I, you've, you've seen three. Will I've you seen watch three. the next five? I admire the heck out of the filmmakers. I think the international cast is great I think it looks the part it was filmed on this virtual stage the amount of effort that went into it the first of its kind actually for a series like this it is quite incredible the writing is what's letting it down and I find one of the most troubling aspects of this series is that it was all of it all of it from the dialogue to the set pieces it's designed to confuse you if everything is weird, Sean, then nothing is weird. And yeah. I think it needs to kind of let us out for air, you know. So there's a little bit too much silliness. The dialogue is a little too clunky. Too many red herrings. Yeah, I will say one thing. Do not binge this thing. Like, maybe keep it forever. You know, maybe keep the episodes a few days apart. I watched three hours in a row. My head nearly fell off. All right. Well, glad it's still on. It <laughs> was there for you to come in to us this evening. That's Chris Wasser speaking to us about 1899. Arrives on Netflix this Thursday, November, November the 17th. And Chris certainly suggesting one episode at a time yeah. is his advice if you're going to go there.